are listening to Low Roads and High Places, a sermon series from the book of 1 Kings, delivered at Hocassin Baptist Church in the winter of 2009. Today's message, entitled Spiritual Fight or Flight, is given by Rick Bino. Good morning. It's an honor to be here this morning and have the opportunity to share with you from God's Word. Pastor John was away all week, uh, fulfilling his guard duty. Uh, so today I'm going to contribute to our continuing series in 1 Kings entitled Low Roads and High Places. And since my current area of expertise as an English teacher revolves around writing and literature, I thought it would be appropriate this morning for me to start today's sermon talking about physiology. <laughs> since uh, that seems to be right up my alley, we're going to go for it. So work with me. I'd like to tell you about Walter Cannon. Walter Cannon served as the professor and chairman of the Department of Physiology at Harvard Medical School back in the early 20th century. Uh, Walter Cannon made many significant discoveries about animal and human behavior. And he has a long list of theories, and one of them is one that you've probably heard of. He called it the fight or flight response in animals and other organisms. Have you heard of the fight or flight response? Good, I thought you had, would have heard of it. Roughly speaking, the, and this is way simplified for those of you who really are uh, in the field of biology or physiology, the fight or flight mechanism roughly characterizes the idea or the response that organisms, both animals and humans, have when they're faced with some kind of threat, either real or perceived. When faced with some sort of crisis, our bodies react. Certain chemicals that I can't pronounce are released. Our neurons start to fire in a different way. A million other biological and physiological responses are triggered. And according to Walter Cannon, they, all these responses lead us to one of two choices. We're either going to fight or we're going to flee. We're going to either resist and confront or we're going to step back or run away. Now, you don't have to have seen too many nature programs to have seen this in action. You see the lion hiding in the long grass, looking at a herd of zebra. As soon as the zebra become aware of the lion, their heads all perk up. Their bodies start firing off those neurons. The chemicals get released. And as the lion moves, instinct kicks in, and the zebras begin to flee. The zebras take flight. They are responding to their fight and flight mechanism. Their built-in instinct tells them, when you see a lion, run. (laughs) Run very fast away from the lion. There's not a lot of decisions being made by the zebra. You've never seen the Animal Planet episode where a zebra turns around and says to the lion, I think I can take you. (laughs) Bring it on. You look kind of scrawny. Let's go for it right here. No. When the lion comes out of the, the, the brush, zebras don't take time to decide what to do. They follow their instinctual desire to flee. Their fight and flight mechanism has kicked in. Well, it's been discovered that this fight or flight mechanism exists in the human as well. 
we too have a way of reacting when faced with crisis, when faced with danger, when faced with some kind of threat. We too must decide whether to fight or flight, but we make this decision a hundred times a day. Because in us, the mechanism of fight or flight is not just reacting towards physical crises, but also for emotional ones and relational ones and spiritual ones as well. We constantly have to decide in situation after situation, what do I do here? Do I confront this situation or do I walk away? Do I say something or do I keep my mouth shut? Do I discipline my child about this or do I just need to let this one go? These are all decisions that fall into the larger category of human fight or flight. And it can be extremely complex for humans. Because unlike the zebra, we don't act purely on instinct. We can decide when we fight and when we take flight. And that decision is informed or influenced by our desires and our emotions and our intellect and our will and our spirituality. And I think this is why people can be so heroic and why people can be so awful. This complexity of the human fight-or-flight mechanism is what allows firemen to run into a burning building when their instinct tells them they should run away. But it's also the reason why some parents abuse their children when instinct tells them they ought to care for them. Because we're not operating simply on instinct, but there's all kinds of other aspects to our decision of whether to fight or take flight. And I think you all know just from experience that there's times when you fight, there's times when you take flight. So the question is, when we're faced with this emotional difficulty or spiritual difficulty or some sort of relational um, confrontation or opportunity for confrontation, the question becomes, well, when do you fight and when do you take flight? When are we supposed to confront things? When are we supposed to face up to things? And when are we supposed to just step back and let things be? How do we know which one to do when? Well, my hope is that in studying the passage today, we'll get some ideas about when to take fight, when to take flight, and when to fight. So we'll turn now to our scripture. But let me pray before we do that God would join us as we open his word together. Lord, we all open your word this morning in humility. We want to be taught by you. We want to listen to you as you speak to us. So I ask that you would ordain my words with your spirit and that truth would be spoken in this room today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to pick up actually at the tail end of 1 Kings chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to pick up in verse 29. We're going to put the words on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. But if you do, I encourage you to turn there. We'll read the end of 16, the very beginning of chapter 17, and then we'll move over and read the very beginning of chapter 18. So pick up with me in 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, 
did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Not only, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, but he also married Jezebel of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. They have also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken to Joshua, son of Nun. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will, neither, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next year, few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon, and stay there. Move over to chapter 18, verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we could find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we do not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land that they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. In these chapters, we meet a couple followers of God, Elijah and Obadiah. One of them you've heard of, Elijah. Elijah was the big man on campus. Elijah was, is the prophet of the Old Testament. He's right up, he ranks right up there with Moses, so it's not surprising that when, the, uh, when Jesus appears on the Mount of Transfiguration, he appears there with Elijah and Moses. Elijah is the man. He is the prophet par excellence. That was French. <laughs> and then we have Obadiah, a man that we know almost nothing about except what we have in this chapter. This is not the same Obadiah that wrote a book later. This is not the prophet Obadiah, who later has a minor prophet book in the New Old Testament. This is an Obadiah that we only know of what 
we know from here. There's no song about Obadiah, like we just sang about Elijah. But even though there's some differences between Elijah and Obadiah, there are some similarities as well, particularly in that they both had a relationship with this King Ahab, and both had to navigate how do you live as a follower of God in a culture that is anti-God. They both had to navigate the question, when do we confront this sin, and when do we step back? When do we fight, and when do we take flight? They both had to answer that question. And I think in doing so, they offer us some ideas about when we should fight and when we should take flight. But before we get too far into Elijah and Obadiah, we need to spend some time talking about Ahab. Last week, we learned that Ahab was the worst Israelite king so far. If you remember, we talked about how 1 Kings, particularly in the last couple of chapters, has this downward trajectory of kings. And it'll say, the king after Jeroboam was worse than Jeroboam, and then the next king was worse than the one before, and and then it was worse, and then it was worse, and then it was worse. But then it gets to Ahab, and he is the worst of them all. You can't get worser than Ahab. Multiple times at the end of chapter 16 does it tell us he was the worst. There was nobody so far as bad as Ahab. Now, we have to remember how 1 Kings is making this evaluation. 1 Kings is not politically judging Ahab. Ahab reigned for 22 years. Certainly during those 22 years, he must have had some political stability. He must have had some savvy decision-making in terms of policies. He must have done something right politically to reign 22 years. But that information is irrelevant to the writer of 1 Kings. He's evaluating these kings on, do they follow God or do they not follow God? And in that way, Ahab's legacy is a horrible one. He represents the lowest of the downward spiral of the Israelite kings. And in just these few short verses at the end of 16, we're given the reasons why he was so bad. First one, as we looked at last week, he built up high places in Samaria. He created a temple to Baal that sort of paralleled Jerusalem's temple to Yahweh. It was sort of an alternative evil temple to Baal. It was anti-Yahweh worship center that was built by Ahab and advocated by Ahab. Secondly, in addition to that, Ahab marries Jezebel. Jezebel, she was a bad person. Matter of fact, she was so bad that her name has become synonymous with bad character. With all due respect to any of you who might have an Aunt Jezebel in their lives, I think it's safe to say that Jezebel is a rare name nowadays. When you're going to name your daughter, you don't pick Jezebel any quicker than you pick Judas for your son. Right? There's some people who have done things so bad in life and have left such a bad association with their name that the name is forever ruined. And I think Jezebel is one of those kinds of names. She was one bad character. She was the daughter of Ethbaal. Ethbaal means with Baal. So her father's name meant with Baal. I'm on the side of Baal. I like Baal. 
there's no way to get around the fact that Ethbaal meant yay Baal. <laughs> it was in his name, for goodness sakes, and he names his daughter Jezebel, which was probably a cry that was heard in the, um, the Baal temples. Where is Baal? Jezebel, his daughter. So Ahab clearly knew what he was getting into when he, measured, when he married Jezebel. Her name was not I Love Jesus, right? Her name was, had Baal in it, for goodness sakes. But it was probably a very wise marriage, politically speaking. It joined them with the Sidonians, a nearby neighbor, that could have created conflict, so there was probably this political alliance that came with the marriage. But what we find is that they make quite a dastardly pair once they are together. I want, to know, want you to know that I'm excited that I worked dastardly into a sermon. That's it's not easy to do. So there you go, dastardly. Ahab has no interest in Yahweh, and he follows Jezebel's lead like that. She says, I want a Baal temple. A Baal temple goes up. I want Asherah poles. Asherah poles goes up. Whatever Jezebel wants, Jezebel gets, especially when it comes to the worship of Baal and the turning away from the worship of Yahweh. We find out at the beginning of 18 that it's Jezebel who has this idea that she ought to exterminate all the prophets of Yahweh. So she, in her apparent spare time, creates this extermination process where she's trying to kill all the prophets of Yahweh. The same, very same prophets, Obadiah, is attempting to hide and to save. So we find in 1 Kings that Ahab is the worst of the worst because of the high places to Baal, because he marries Jezebel, and because he tries to rebuild Jericho. Now the Jericho one, might, we might miss the Jericho connection. But the ancient Hebrews who were reading this would not have missed the fact that Ahab tried to rebuild Jericho. It's just one verse at the end of chapter 16 that under Ahab, Hiel of Bethel attempted to rebuild or they rebuilt Jericho. Again, this would have been politically a great move. Jericho was on the border. It overlooked the Jordan. It was a great position for offense and for defense. It was a good place politically to, to, have, a, to have a city. But all those who followed God, all those true followers of Yahweh, knew that Jericho represented something to, the, to them as followers of God. You probably remember that Jericho was the first city that was conquered by the Israelites as they went into the Promised Land. And a matter of fact, the Israelites actually technically didn't do much to defeat it. God directly defeated Jericho. You remember the story? They marched around Jericho once a day for seven days, and the last day they marched around it seven times. The Ark of the Covenant's in the front, the priests are in the front, the worship team's in the front, blowing the trumpets. The warriors aren't doing anything, they're just marching. And at the sound of the horns blowing, the, the walls fall down. The walls come tumbling down. So God defeats Jericho. And the understanding of those who were there, they understand that this is representative, that Jericho represents the movement of Yahweh into the promised land, the movement of God into the promised land, that Jericho represents the defeat of the sinfulness and the idolatry of Canaan and the new rule of God in the land. And it's for this reason that Joshua says, cursed is anyone who tries to rebuild Jericho. 
Because in rebuilding Jericho, you are symbolically returning back to the way it was. Returning back to idolatry. Turning your back on Yahweh in rebuilding Jericho. And so Joshua says, cursed is whoever tries to undertake the rebuilding of this city. Here's the curse. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay his foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up the gates. That's back in Joshua. Fast forward to Ahab. And if you are a Hebrew reader of this, you are not surprised to find out that the oldest son and the youngest son of the lead engineer of this rebuilding was, died in the process. And that the curse was fulfilled. Ahab's rebuilding of Jericho was just one other step in his turning his back towards God. And so we have Ahab, we have Jezebel, and we have all that is evil. And we feel like this is the worst of the worst. It's the worst it can be. There is no hope. There is no light. There is no goodness. We have high places over here. We have Asherah poles over here. We have Jericho being built over here. We have Jezebel running around killing the prophets of Yahweh. This can't be a good scene. Is there anything good? Enter Elijah. Be a great movie scene. We know hardly anything about him. A little bit about the town he's from. All we know is that he shows up at Ahab's doorstep and he says, the Lord told me to tell you there'll be no rain until I say so. Exit stage left. <laughs> right, that's the scene. That's what it is. There'll be no rain until I say so. And in seeing that, we might say, oh, Elijah, he's a fighter. That's what Elijah is. He's the one that goes in there and he's the one that tells it like it is. Elijah's the fighter. But then in the very next verse, the very next line, it says, The word of the Lord said to Elijah, Run and hide. Which I think brings us to the first principle about fighting and fleeing. And that is, sometimes you must fight, and sometimes you must fly. Elijah, in verse 1, is standing before the king, and he's fighting. By verse 2, he's holed up in a cave, drinking out of a brook, being fed by ravens, who drop off food to him twice a day. The contrast, I think, is palpable. He's fighting, and then he flies. And so clearly, we must get over any ideas that fighting is the brave thing to do and stepping aside is the cowardly thing to do. The fact of the matter is, there's a place for both. There's places for one or the other. You know, you can overfight. You can fight for too many things. You can try to die on too many hills. But you can also overflight. You can step aside too many times when you ought to have stepped up. But we don't want to say that one's always right and one's always wrong, that one's always better. Because each situation dictates whether we take fight, flight or whether we fight. Well, how did Elijah know which one to do? Well, he listened to God's word. 
Now, I don't know how you perceive somebody like Elijah. When it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, I don't know how you picture that in your mind. But it's hard for me not to picture it in the typical way of a voice. Elijah, you now need to go to the brook and meet my ravens who will feed you there. Because we would all would say, well, man, you know, I'd do it. I'd, I'd follow God if he talked to me like that. But, you know, nothing in the text tells us that God talks to Elijah like that. It simply says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And I, I, I must think that at least sometimes the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the same way that the word of the Lord comes to us, because he was praying and listening. That Elijah was praying, that he was listening, that he was attentive to God, and that perhaps God's spirit simply spoke to his spirit. And even as he was walking away from Ahab with his fight word, with his fighting words, right? Even as he's walking away, the Holy Spirit prompted his spirit and said, Elijah, you're done fighting. You need to go hide in the cave for a while. I don't know if it was a booming voice from heaven, but it certainly could have been the Spirit of God speaking to his spirit in the same way the Spirit of God speaks to ours. And so when we're trying to decide when do we fight and when do we take flight, I think a key portion of this is that we learn to hear the voice of God. And the way we learn to hear the voice of God is we spend time listening, reading his word, praying, understanding what the prompting of the Spirit feels like in our lives, and being able to discern the prompting of the Spirit from other influences that are upon us. If we want to become better at knowing when to fight or flight, we need to take more time, continue to take time to listen to God. In addition to discerning God's voice, we also need to discern our circumstances. There are some circumstances that led Elijah to move on from his cave to Sidon, where the widow was. The passage says that sometime later, the brook dried up. Now I'm imagining Elijah. He'd been hanging out there for maybe a year. We don't know quite how long he was actually there. But now you've just declared that there would be no rain. So the brook drying up doesn't surprise you. But when it dries up, circumstances make Elijah go, huh, I wonder if I'm supposed to do something different now because I have no water. And at that moment, it says the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, move on. And so there's a sense in which circumstances and the word of the Lord worked in concert with one another to help Elijah know what to do next. And it happens so often with us as well. We seek and we pray and we ask for God to give us direction. Do we fight? Do we flight? Do we go after this? Do we step back? What do we do? And we find that, that God's Spirit moves in us in conjunction with some circumstances aligning up for us. And we need to discern both in order to understand what God would like us to do. So we need to be attentive to circumstances. Because sometimes circumstances will help us to know, do we confront this or do we need to let it go? Is this a bad time? You can imagine if you have some difficult conversation that you need to have with the spouse. Probably 10.30 at night while you're lying in bed is not a good time. 
right? You say, well, this is a bad circumstances for this conversation. And so you decide, I'm going to let it go this time, and I'm going to discuss it at another time that has better circumstances, when we're more awake, when we haven't been through a long day, whatever it may be. And so we can see that in deciding whether to fight or take flight, that our circumstances can dictate and help to know when, which one is right at which time. Well, we need to move on to chapter 18. Three years have passed, there's been no rain. The word of the Lord comes again to Elijah. Again, we don't know how. We imagine it booming out of the sky, but let's pretend for a moment that it just became part of his spirit, that the spirit told him it was time to move on. And the spirit tells Elijah, go back and meet with Ahab. Now, Ahab's been looking for Elijah. It says in, chapter, in verse 10 of chapter 18 that there wasn't a nation nearby where he hadn't sent people trying to find Elijah. And of course we know why, because it was only by Elijah's word that the rain was going to begin again. So Ahab's been looking for Elijah. So finally, Elijah gets the word to go back to Ahab. So Elijah's going this direction, towards Ahab. Ahab, unbeknownst to him, is going towards Elijah because he's out looking for green grass for his livestock, for his horses and his mules. But at the start, Ahab is not traveling alone. He is traveling with his number one man, Obadiah, leader of his palace, second in charge in all the land. And then the writer gives us this little parenthesis. And it almost makes me chuckle. Because the stuff in the parenthesis is unbelievably life-changing and earth-shattering in this passage. The famine was severe, the narrator says. Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace, and oh, by the way, Obadiah, he followed Yahweh, and while psycho Jezebel was trying to kill all the prophets, he was hiding them right under her nose. So anyway, he's out walking with Ahab, and I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you trying to tell me that in the darkest days of Israel, the second in command was a follower of God? How awesome is that? Here's Jezebel running around killing prophets while at the same time Obadiah's over here hiding them. God has not abandoned them. Elijah's there. Obadiah's there right under Ahab's nose. That's just fabulous. Well, Ahab and Obadiah split up in searching for this pasture land. Obadiah runs into Elijah, and Elijah says, you go, back to your tell, you go back to your master, and you tell him, Elijah's here. Again, Hollywood. Hollywood would love that, right? Some great music. The tagline on the poster, Elijah is here. Obadiah does so, and their meeting will lead to one of the greatest showdowns in the Old Testament, the prophets of Baal versus the Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, on Mount Carmel. And uh, Pastor John will be preaching about that next week. But these covert actions of Obadiah created a little bit of a crisis in me in thinking about this fight or flight. And the point I think I learned from it is this, that sometimes fight looks like flight. Sometimes fight looks like flight. I had this dilemma with Obadiah. I couldn't figure out if sneaking around the palace as an incognito follower of God, hiding prophets, is that fighting 
Or is that flighting? Which isn't a word, but I'm going to use it. Is that fighting? Or is that flighting? I mean, it seems like flight, because we might want to say, well, if he was fighting, he would march up to Ahab and say, I'm a follower of Yahweh. Stop killing the prophets. But I think what we discover is that Obadiah's perceived flight is actually a very powerful and subversive fight. And I think we see the same thing in Jesus when he hangs on the cross. He's beaten. He's been whipped. He's wearing the the crown of thorns. They're mocking him. They're saying, you're so powerful. You're some kind of miracle worker. worker. Save yourself. And from everyone looking around, they would say, he's letting it go. He's not going to save himself. He's taking flight. When in reality, at that very same moment, this apparent taking flight was actually Jesus winning the greatest fight of them all. Sometimes, what looks like taking flight may actually be the best way to fight. I think we can see this too with Elijah's flight away from Ahab. His flight away from Ahab, hiding in the caves and then hiding with the widow in Zarephath, had some fight in it too. Now we didn't read that section of chapter 17, but I encourage you to do so. Read 17, verses 7 and following sometime, and ask yourself the question, in what way was Elijah's flight from Ahab also a fight against him? That's your homework. It's a knee-jerk reaction of mine. There it is. Read the passage. Answer the question. I'll collect it next week. This brings us to our last principle. Be aware of your own disposition, which may not always be right. Now, this one isn't directly from the text, because I don't really know Elijah or Obadiah well enough to know what their disposition naturally was, but I guarantee you that they had one. Because all of us do. We have, because of our personalities and our backgrounds and and, and who we are, we all lean towards wanting to fight or wanting to take flight. It's just sort of part of our makeup. So some of you will confront and go toe-to-toe and face up to issues at the drop of a hat. You are a fighter. Right? You know who you are. Right? You walk around life going, I'm ready to fight. What's the topic? That's just your disposition. You are a confronter and a fighter. That's what you're comfortable with. And to you, I simply say, be careful about fighting too much. Be careful about fighting too much. Not everything is worth your fight response. Well, then there are others of us, and I fall into this category, who lean towards the flight mechanism. I would much rather walk away from a situation. I don't want to create conflict. I don't want to create more conflict. I get irritated when people put me into a conflict. Many of you are like that. You just kind of want to go into your corner and let life be. Everything is fine. And to you, I say, be especially careful about fleeing too much. Some things need to be confronted. Some things need to be faced up to. You might want to let the sleeping dog lie. Sometimes the sleeping dog needs to be kicked. (laughs) Those of you who are fighters know that you can't always fight. And those of you who are fleers know that you can't always take flight. 
On a warm April evening, 17 years ago, <clears throat> 17 years ago, I was sitting on the bench on the boardwalk at Daytona Beach. I was there with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and we were doing beach and boardwalk evangelism, which means you walk up to people you've never met and you talk to them about Jesus, which for a naturally flight-oriented person was quite an effort in self-discipline. So I had spent the day out of my comfort zone, walking up to people I didn't know, talking about Jesus. We, me and my roommate, John, we were sitting on a bench. We were waiting for her, our ride, and I was off-duty. I had done my uncomfortable stuff. Now I just wanted to chill out. And so we're sitting there, we're waiting for our ride. And this group of teenage boys is walking down the boardwalk. You know. And then this group of teenage boys is walking down the boardwalk this direction, another group. And as they're walking by, the end boys on each group kind of do one of those like shoulder bump things, they kind of bump each other. And the whole group, each group start looking over each other's shoulder. And they're still walking, but now they're talking. Right? <laughs> And then the group this way, they're walking, they're talking too. Until finally somebody makes apparently the crucial move, and that is they turned all the way around. At which time the whole group turned all the way around. At which time the people over here, they turned around, and their whole group turned around. So they're about as far apart as this stage is. And John and I are sitting right here. <laughs> I elbow John. And I say, I think there's going to be a fight. <laughs> and then I, in classic flight response mode, sit back to watch. <laughs> Let's see what turns out here. And so these two groups, they start coming towards each other, clearly aggressive. One of them that had been holding a skateboard to his side that had it up like a weapon, brass knuckles were coming out of pockets. And they were converging. And I'm, we're, John and I are watching. We're, and they're coming together, and they're probably about four or five or six foot apart when I feel this hand grab my arm, and up I come out of the bench, and the next thing I know, John and I are standing in the middle of the boardwalk right where these two groups came together. There we all stand in what seemed like an eternity. The guys are looking at us absolutely confused. I'm looking at my roommate absolutely confused about how I got in this situation. And then my roommate, I'll never forget what he said. He points to a hotel and he says, do any of you boys know the name of that hotel? <laughs> to which all of us looked at him like he was nuts. Does anyone know the name of that hotel? We're about to rumble. And he said again, no, I can't, I can't remember the name of that hotel. Anybody know the name of that hotel? Ten seconds later, all the boys are debating among themselves, what is the name of this hotel? <laughs> Forty-five seconds later, they're all walking on their merry way. Sixty seconds later, John turns to me and says, well, now, wasn't that fun? And I was calculating the number of years of my life that I just lost. <laughs> but I learned a lesson that day, my friends. And that is, what seems like the comfortable answer may not be the right one. 
You need to know yourself. You need to know your own heart and your own soul. And you need to know that sometimes the right thing to do isn't the comfortable thing to do. Sometimes you're going to need to confront when you don't want to. And sometimes you're going to need to let go when you don't want to. But if the God is telling you to do this, then he's going to sustain you in doing it. If God instructs you to do so, you need to follow. For just as with Elijah, he will provide for your needs. And just with Obadiah, he will protect you. And maybe in the process, protect others, as he did with Obadiah. May God bless our time in his word today.